This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, March 10th, 2022, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. As we always talk about on here, the internet is a wild, wild place. There are some dark corners that they're now showing us, showing a light upon. It's revealing some of these digital dating villains, let's call them these online dating villains. We talked about West Elm Caleb a few weeks ago. Things seem to have quieted down around him, but he has been replaced with the Tinder swindler. So there's a, a pretty popular documentary on Netflix kind of regaling the tales of a gentleman named Shimon Hayut, a.k.a. Simon Lviv, who would meet women on Tinder, pose as a wealthy jet-setting mogul or the son of a, a wealthy jet-setting diamond uh, icon, um, woo the women with gifts, trips, and the, the prospects of emotional rescue and love, and only to con the women out of millions of dollars. And it turns out he was perpetuating a bit of a Ponzi scheme where uh, uh, he'd be whining and dining one of the women with the money that he conned from the last woman. And it's a pretty wild story. It tells you a lot about human nature and about human relations. And a little bit later in this episode, I am going to be uh, discussing the topic with an expert on human relations, a gentleman named Chris Voss. He's the former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, founder of the Black Swan Group, and author of a book called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. So nobody's been in more tense situations where you have to read people, you have to understand what what's making people tick, what their true intentions are, than Chris. I'm talking about negotiating for the release of hostages in the Middle East from murderous thug terrorist groups and obviously you learn a lot about human nature through those experiences and chris brings that to bear and we're going to be talking a, a little bit about uh that with also with my friend nicole benham who uh, is the founder of beyond media who's also very shrewd kind of shrewd mind documenting these things we talk about kind of the the controversies and the frauds that pop up in the digital dating world all the time um but basically and, and as chris's book recounts uh he's focuses on the techniques and principles that hold the keys to unlock profitable human interactions in every domain and for better or for worse the techniques and principles that can unlock profitable human interactions can also unlock risky human interactions right the people that have these skills and these techniques down they can use them for good or they can use them for evil in the case of the tinder swindler obviously he used them for some unsavory objectives and we're going to get into how how do you how do you spot a fraud how do you spot a liar how do you deal with a liar and how do we kind of take self inventory to understand what our own vulnerabilities may be in being duped by somebody like the tinder swindler and it, it always kind of 
harkens me back to an early experience I had in my professional career that is why I've been able to have a better radar for these things because I experienced it kind of young and luckily uh, there were no negative impacts from this. But I had a client, um, will remain nameless, and someone had referred uh, him to me and he would, I, I never met him face to face. We'd only communicate but via phone and digitally. And he kept on finding himself in trouble with various landlords and jumping from renting a home, renting home to home. And he seemed like a nice enough guy on the phone, but he'd always have an excuse as to why he couldn't pay someone, why he was late on his rent, you know, three months behind on his rent to his landlord and um, seemed perfectly fine. I mean, I, I was trying to assist him in a professional capacity. So um, obviously I was inclined to believe his stories, but they're clearly clearly uh, there was a pattern of behavior here and, and eventually it turned out that this gentleman was lying to everybody about you know his identity um, his profession and it just showed me that certain people are capable of of lying to an extent beyond what a normal person is capable of. And I think that's part of the reason why people are susceptible to frauds like the Tinder swindler is that you don't believe that there's anyone who would lie to this extent. You don't believe anyone, either one, would have such ill and malicious intent or two, is capable of, of lying this much and then sleeping at night. The first lesson in being able to sniff out these frauds is understanding that there are people who are truly sociopathic. Okay, They will believe their own lies. They will... Uh, uh, some way, somehow, they tell themselves before they go to sleep each night that whatever this fantasy of, of their excuses or why they haven't been able to fulfill their obligations or why they told this person that they were going to pay him six months ago and they're, they're still waiting for payment, why that's okay and why there's some excuse and why they're really being oppressed by somebody actually trying to collect on the money that this person owes them. And so understanding that it, the more elaborate someone's story is, the more that you have to come up with explanations for why this person's behavior is not fraudulent that's usually a pretty good tip off that that this person is is giving them the runaround so chris nicole and i are going to get into this in far more detail and we're going to be able to lean on all the principles that chris discussed in his book which is obviously geared towards negotiating but all the skills and tactics that are useful to one in a negotiation whether it be a business or personal context also you know are very translatable to understanding how to spot a fraud particularly in the digital dating world or in just the digital world in general because we're experiencing so many people with their their digital facade first before we meet them in person. So I think it'll be a really interesting and useful conversation for everybody. Okay, so also this week, the 10-year anniversary of Coney 2012. Everybody remember Coney, the first instance of hashtag activism, slacktivism, and what Susie Weiss in a fascinating piece this week referred to as the legacy of the Internet's first moral panic. And these moral panics around these social media causes or these faux social justice causes, they they keep on popping up. And, you know, Susie's thesis was that we, we've never escaped Coney, that Coney was the first in it, it tipped us off to what we were going to see continually in the social media era of some moral panic around a supposed moral wrong that if we just build enough awareness around, we'll somehow solve it. And if we want to feel like good people, we can participate in it by speaking up on social media and somehow contributing to the implementation of justice. So if people don't quite remember Coney, it was a viral video um, that was released on YouTube that just did incredible numbers, 103 million views within about a week. And it was about some Ugandan warlord named Coney who was 
was committing atrocities all over the place, recruiting child soldiers, um, uh, molesting uh, female inhabitants of towns that he would invade in just a horrendous anything you could think about that could go wrong with an evil African warlord. This was what Coney was engaging in. And so an individual named Jason Russell, as Susie Weiss explains it. So as Jason Russell, Invisible Children's young, blonde, enthusiastic co-founder explained in the mission video, uh, Jason told us Coney was an elusive Ugandan warlord and leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, and he was terrorizing northern Uganda, capturing girls, turning them into sex slaves, and turning boys into child, child soldiers. There were montages of fa- facially mutilated Ugandan people, and then other kinds of kids dancing, slick graphics, and even a song by Mumford and Sons and Nine, Nine Inch Nails. We were told that Coney would be captured if only we could, quote-unquote, make him famous. That was the slogan. The logo was a, don- a donkey and an elephant and an olive branch, which is actually reminiscent of the Obama campaign, and that's something that I think f- people forget, is that the artwork around Coney was essentially a replica of the Obama artwork. And as she says, it fits snugly with another one of the campaign's mottos, one thing we can all agree on. The whole drive was meant to culminate in an event called Cover the Night on April 20th, 2012, when all of the teen activists would stay out past curfew, b- blanketing our towns with posters of Coney, so when the grown-ups woke up in the morning, they would have no choice but to just go and get him already. So here, here's what's kind of happening. The idea that, once again, identifying an injustice, creating a social media campaign to kind of foment uh, a posting and sharing around this topic that make people feel that they're participating in in some really righteous social movement simply by posting on social media and that by creating enough awareness, say his name, make him famous, it will somehow solve the problem. But much like with many of these campaigns that are based around this, this these illusions and so, uh, sloganeering, it all ended up being bullshit. Apparently, by the time the Coney video came out, the Lord's Resistance Army and Coney hadn't even been active in Uganda since 2006. They hadn't launched a a large-scale attack anywhere since 2010. Apparently, Obama had already made an attempt to capture Coney, which failed. And and the whole idea that this was an active uh, African warlord actively committing these atrocities and is something that was definable enough, a problem definable enough to go and solve, was a complete illusion. Um, Even beyond that, about 10 days later, Jason Russell, the founder of this organization and and the producer of this video went insane and was caught on video in San Diego naked attacking and vandalizing cars. He had a mental breakdown and was involuntarily put in a mental institution for about three months. So also is something that becomes quite a consistent pattern of these things. It ended up being an embarrassing failure and embarrassing everybody uh, who, who decided to participate in it. So getting people's hopes up that they're participating in a righteous social justice cause only for it to be an embarrassing failure and an illusion. And of course, the normal celebrity participation, Angelina Jolie got involved. Justin Bieber posted on it. Bono said that Jason Russell deserved an Oscar and Oprah threw in $2 million, a $2 million donation through her foundation. And so it's really interesting because Coney was such an embarrassing failure. It turned out that the founder, you know, was a complete nutcase. And this this was all some fabricated attempt just to kind of a marketing campaign playing on people's emotions. And you'd think that, okay, well, well, that would kind of signal to society, we shouldn't do this anymore. We shouldn't participate in these kind of fabricated social media marketing campaign causes um, uh, around these moral panics, that there's some great outrage or injustice that we need to go solve using our phone as a tool. But the exact opposite thing happened. This became a hallmark of society. And we've just been perpetuating these moral panics and these faux social justice online causes 
in this hashtag activism ever since. It's incessant. And you can look at something like Me Too and say that, you know, whether or not Me Too might have gone a little too far, that there there was a lot, uh, that there was meat on the bone there, that, that this was identifying an actual injustice and that there were tangible results from it. But let's look at the scorecard. Let's look at the track record of hashtag activisms and faux social justice moral outrage campaigns on the Internet. And let's be honest, more of them ended up like Coney 2012 than like Me Too. And I think it's very telling because it, it really reveals where society's moral compass is at and where society's moral centers and also, you know, where people are putting their attention, right? Because if people continue to just repetitively fall for these these marketing campaigns that end up being uh, somewhat misrepresentative um, and don't actually accomplish anything, that it shows that people are putting a lot of time, attention and effort and resources into things that do not move the ball forward, um, into things that do not perpetuate or improve society. And why is that? And and I think you know, Susie Wise, she made an interesting point. Everyone forgets, right? We we're only about four or five years into the smartphone era when, when Coney happened, you know, iPhone released 2007. And I think, you know, we really didn't pick up kind of full-blown adoption of smartphones right around in 2011, 12. And you just kind of see that with the advent of Instagram and, uh, and photo sharing apps. So, you know, we finally have this tool in our pocket that can provide us, you know, communication with anyone and any piece of information known to men at the snap of our fingers. And Coney 2012 and all these hashtag activism campaigns, they give people the impression that they have a tool that they can use to feel better about themselves, to to improve their moral standing in the world, and to really make a difference by participating in these campaigns. There's a guy named Chris Beiser, I believe is how his name is, pronounced, I found on Twitter, and he had a lot of interesting thoughts on Coney, kind of broke down, so, okay, what was really going on here? What does this say about society and signaling why we've, we've become a society of hashtag uh, activist campaigns going forward? Um, so some of his thoughts. The central conceit of Coney 2012 repeated over and over. If enough people know who Coney is, his reign would end. The reason it imploded so fast though was pretty soon it became clear that enough people did know who he was and that awareness failed. So I think if someone told you, hey, if we just make enough people aware of cancer that we will cure cancer, I mean, you obviously would tell them that, that that's absolutely ridiculous. But with some of these other these other campaigns, we, we believe that this is actually how things work, that awareness in and of itself, or at least awareness as the first step to towards some other un, you know indefinable or vague goal towards uh, in furtherance of solving a problem i mean it, it just it feels like it's giving us a false sense of how easy it is to solve society's problems right i mean let's say coney was actually still active in uganda at the time was there really a chance that we were going to go you know send a militia or some special forces to go shut him down and, and that this social media campaign was going to create the conditions to do so while our government and you know the the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars we're spending towards uh foreign affairs the military and military intelligence and they, that that money was just all sitting dormant and then some of it was going to start to be put towards solving this coney problem if only we made it a big enough deal on social media apparently some people thought so or at least subconsciously Beiser goes on the ideological hyperstition vortex of awareness drives a viral adoption curve belief itself is given quasi magical powers becomes an end in its own right belief itself is given quasi magical powers I think that's a very interesting way to put it um, he puts this as a millen uh, millenarian missionary movement 
It feels like that. That's also a good de- a description here. It feels like these are all missionary movements. Like, hey, if you if you want to kind of pay your dues to society um, and and contribute in a moral manner, because you're not contributing on a day to day basis in your own life, participate in these hashtag activist campaigns, and and that will get you the put get you the karma deposits that you need. And so I guess I kind of see this as more replacement. Is that participation in these campaigns? One, I mean, they're based on kind of the shallow investigation that that social media really indulges too much no nobody does the research right we see this viral video um, regarding coney 2012 and nobody investigates whether or not it's actually true they tug on people's heartstrings it's got very vivid imagery we think oh there's no way a person like jason russell is is pulling one over on us this must be some righteous campaign this this must actually be going on we don't actually look to see wait a second is this warlord is this story true is this warlord active have there been attempts to capture him previously if so uh, if not, why weren't why weren't they? And if so, why were they unsuccessful? Had they done any research, they would have all seen that this was going to end as a dumpster fire. So that's also one of our kind of consistent universal habits now: shallow inquiry and, and uh, research. Um, beyond that, I mean, it's just the the reliance and the reaction, the being so reactionary to slogans. As Susie Wise continues, we learned to pair each year's slogans and post infographics and put our preferred pronouns in our bios and believe that this was the same thing as fighting injustice. We let corporations and opportunists tell us that they'd take care of the hard part if only we donate our money or email our representative and we use their forms and language and dedicated our feeds to the cause. So I, I think that is very telling as to this being a replacement for true morality, that people don't feel great about what they're contributing to the world from a personal and professional standpoint in their day-to-day lives. So they figure, okay, it, it, participation in these causes or in these social media movements, that will fill the void. That will put the points on the board that I don't otherwise score in the rest of my life. But in, in, at the end of the day, it's simply not true. This is all really just uh, traditional marketing campaigns using the same advertising tricks, persuasion tricks that advertising and marketing firms have been using forever, except for to play on people's emotions to participate in what would be otherwise be very serious issues. And this is really just an unserious way to approach serious issues, as we'll get to in a second regarding what is being called, again, very falsely, just like Coney was very false, the Florida don't say gay bill. Yet that this is a problem. We've got we need a return to seriousness unless we're looking at these moral, these online moral panics and hashtag activism campaigns with an initially skeptical eye, we will we will continue to slide into unserious attempts to solve serious problems. God, it is so fitting that this is the 10-year anniversary of Coney because we have almost a perfect analog this week with another hashtag activist foam moral outrage campaign based on a false pretense. This time, it is the Florida, quote-unquote, don't say gay bill. Okay, so the background here is there is a House Bill 1557 termed the Parental Rights and Education Bill that was passed by the Florida House of Representatives a few weeks back. Now went this week to the Florida Senate where it was just approved. We'll go to the governor's desk for final approval. Okay, so what's going on around that? All the Google results around this story refer to the bill as the don't say gay bill. Okay, so that's the slogan that they've chosen for this one. And what is the supposed injustice or outrage? Instead of Ugandan warlords, uh, now we have apparently a bill that prevents you from saying gay in public schools in Florida um, in public and in school curriculums and is silencing and erasing the homosexual community via doing so. Um, so, the, as I said, there's hundreds upon hundreds of stories written about this, this topic, all referring to it as the don't say gay bill. 
bill. So then you look at it and okay, well, obviously the state legislature is not going to term the bill don't say gay. So okay, who decided that that's what we were going to call the bill? Obviously their opponents to this legislation and they have decided to label it successfully in this case as don't say gay. All right, so let's look at it. Does it actually do this? Does it prevent anyone from saying gay in any circumstance whatsoever? Now let's look at the legislation's language. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. So let's read that again. May not occur in kindergarten through grade three. Okay. So pretty much what this is doing is preventing school curriculum from involving sexual orientation or gender identity for kids up to the age of about seven or eight. Well, looks like this one was complete and utter bullshit as well. And this is obviously to play on people's emotions because they want to believe that there is this evil attempt to erase gay people from uh, the public school curriculums or, or shroud or re require gay teenagers, or gay students to silence themselves and, and prevent them from expressing their sexual orientation or gender identity. And of course, it turns out that that is not at all what is happening. And it's simply not allowing curriculum or, or teaching materials on these topics for kids up till about age seven or eight. Um, but the, the reaction uh, is obviously completely devoid and completely detached from those realities. And everybody and the usual suspects, both, you know, people who have no desire to actually look at the, the text of the legislation or investigate any further, want to participate in this righteous cause and engage in these ridiculous social media hysterics and theatrics to show, to be part, to, to try to solve the problem. If we can build awareness, if I say gay and I've gone and saved the homosexual youth community in the state of Florida, um, Luke Skywalker, of all people, got Mark Hamill, the actor who played Luke Skywalker, tweets out, gay, 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 69 times in a rainbow emoji on his Twitter profile the other day. Um, Man, I mean, we're seeing Coney 2012 all over again. People just all just goes to a dumpster fire based on false pretenses and people engaging in these ridiculous hysterics all to be part of some cause that turns out to be phony. I mean, this is as a reporter responded to Hamill named John Nicosia said the don't say gay bill in quotes might be the largest real time fake news spread by the majority of the mainstream media in history. I won't go quite that far, but clearly this is a falsification of what's going on in the bill. So so then when you identify that this is not actually what the bill says, how do people react? Well, then they just they, they pretty much gaslight. They've deflect and say, well, it, the problem isn't what was actually in the bill. The problem is what the bill implies. Right. So uh, a Florida state representative, Carlos Smith, um, he put it that this bill goes way beyond the text of its page. It sends a terrible message to our youth that there is something so wrong, so inappropriate, so dangerous about LGBTQ people. We have to censor them from classroom instruction once again for kids who are five, six, seven, up to eight years old. Do these kids, is sexuality even part of their existence? I mean, why? What is this insistence that we need to talk about sexual orientation or identity with kids who haven't even hit puberty yet? How is this the most important civil rights issue of our time, right? Or at least that people want to want to uh, uh, misframe it as such. And that because Carlos Smith and these people cannot defend because they realize that they've been revealed to have misrepresented the bill itself, they have to come up with some other excuse. So because they can't, they know that their argument as to the actual bill is incorrect. They have to say, oh, well, the bill goes beyond 
on the page, the text of the page that if you say that we shouldn't be talking about homosexuality with seven year olds, then it signals to 17 year old homosexuals that there's something wrong with them. I'm sorry that that's that's just not that's such a broken way to look at this topic and the world in general. We have to acknowledge that like maybe maybe sexuality is not particularly uh, appropriate for various kids in various stages of development. And also that someone's sexuality or, or, or gender identity is not the defining characteristic of that person in general. That just because you're not talking about someone's sexual orientation does not mean that you're not talking about them because people are more than just their census category. They're more than just their identity group. And you want know something? I get a lot of direct DMs from gay people and gay followers of mine that are not on board with this stuff. They acknowledge that their uh, their lifestyle is a deviation from heteronormativity and that they, that doesn't and acknowledging that doesn't necessarily mean that people are being critical of them. They understand that there's a biological foundation to procreation and that, you know, I had a gentleman, uh, a gay follower of mine message me in response to this topic today and say, like, listen, me and my, my husband, we uh, we had a surrogate and we have two daughters and we have a loving, wonderful family. And that's fantastic. But I can explain to my child that this is why you have to that, you know, that that you were not born to a mother and you have two fathers. OK. And just because it's appropriate and makes sense for me to be able to explain that to my kid doesn't necessarily mean that it should be taught to everybody else's kid through a public school curriculum in second freaking grade. And it, it's just it's a really bad sign that so many people realize that very sensible approach that I I just described that that that's the right approach, but feel uncomfortable saying it because once again, these these are just intimidation campaigns under the guise of social justice. These moral panics that we're doing the right thing, and if we participate in this, then we're bending the arc of the universe towards justice. But it's all bullshit. But then you look, and once again, it's the responsiveness. It's that people don't feel good enough, whether people or corporations don't feel good enough about how they're conducting themselves on a day-to-day -day basis that when when they see one of these campaigns or they see the pressure they see that hey there's a, a wrong there's there's an injustice and a wrong to be righted and uh, here's an opportunity for me to participate in that or that they they are concerned or suspect that they'll be subject to criticism for not participating in it that they have to get vocal about it and that tips over into the corporate world because look at this Disney CEO Bob Chapek says he called Governor DeSantis the this morning and conveyed his disappointment, quote unquote, regarding the don't say gay bill. He and Disney execs will meet with the governor. He adds that Disney is signing a statement opposing such legislation across the U.S. Then Chapik goes on to say, I understand our original approach, no matter how well intended, didn't quite get the job done. Look at what's actually happening here. The most prominent kids entertainment brand, youth entertainment brand on earth, feels pressure from people to go and oppose legislation and express their disappointment at a bill that says that we shouldn't be discussing someone's gender or a sexual orientation or gender identity with kids who are five through eight years old. Okay, look look at how broken our... This is a lost society, right? When you have powerful organizations that are supposed to be there to entertain, to provide loving, charming, and, and inspiring content and amusing content to children, beloved content, now feel that, that it's their moral imperative to make sure that we discuss, that, that we are able to talk about any types of alternative sexuality or gender orientation or people who have gender... Uh, gender dysphoria um, to two little children, regardless of their developmental stage, that this is not something for the home, for parents, that this is something that needs to be run through all public institutions. And why is this? Do you think Bob Chapik and the shareholders and the board over at Disney really think that this is the, the issue and the fulcrum on which the morality of society turns? No, it's because of the, the most vicious, the most ignorant people who misrepresent the nature of the bill and will just dismiss once it's revealed uh, their 
ignorance is revealed, we'll just move on to another excuse and another criticism because they are the loudest and most vicious on the Internet. They get to trigger and they get to catalyze action by corporate actors because no, because these corporations are still so overly reactive to any criticism on the Internet whatsoever. What do you think was going to happen to Disney if they just didn't comment on this, if they just moved the hell on? Right. Nothing was going to happen to them in two weeks. Everyone's going to move on from this topic. You'll get a couple stragglers and it's going to be out of the news cycle. But these corporations, they just can't they cannot help themselves. They can't resist it when anything hits a news cycle and they are subject to any type of palpable criticism whatsoever. They think they have to react. They just don't get it. Just shut up. Wait, everybody, everybody loses attention and moves on to something in a week and a half. Of all the co- the topics for them to get involved in and take a stand on, um, a gentleman named Kyler Schittler, he mentioned on, on Twitter, if Disney's corporate leadership thinks it has a fiduciary interest in teaching sex to pre-K to third graders, maybe a more intensive investigation of their business practices is in order. Like, this is kind of devious. This is kind of degenerate. It's like, no, I'm sorry. I don't want Disney chiming in on teenage and youth sexuality. Disney has no place commenting on whether or not there are certain young uh, boys and girls who have a mental dis- uh, dissociative disorder where they believe that they were born in the wrong body and want to be the other gender. No, Disney has no place commenting on that topic whatsoever. Yet, because we live in we live in the age of Coney, all stretching back to that incident and how hashtag activism became a thing, um, and we're trying to all build, uh, you know, we kind of uh, uh, believe that everything is a a function of awareness. These corporations now think that they need to get involved in these types of subjects and topics. So I don't know. I want to go support the companies that don't get involved, that focus on their fiduciary interests or also focus on true injustices that are relevant to their business. Um, I'm sorry. Making sure that we teach second graders about gender identity and sexual orientation is not the great civil rights battle of our time. And if you think it is, you're really being dishonest and it seems like you're searching for something. You're searching for you, you don't you don't really have enough good to feel about in your own life that you feel like you have to snatch for for kind of uh, uh, moral you have to snatch for tokens of salvation through these types of campaigns and you got to step off this stuff. Okay, so the war in the Ukraine is still raging. All the effects of the Russian invasion are being felt, and we're seeing what the second, third, fourth order impacts are um, on the world economy, commodity prices, social media and communications and companies detaching themselves from Russia, the global balance of power. There are just so many storylines that that go into this or could be relevant to that situation right now that it's almost impossible to choose one. So right now, I'm just going to go through a handful of kind of sub storylines that seem interesting in materials that I've that that I think help give more texture, uh, help you be more informed on the topic. Um, one thread that I found that was very interesting, a friend of mine, Matt Palmer, um, he's a, a security consultant and he, he has he's had some very interesting um, perspectives on the Russian invasion and even kind of called it a couple weeks before it happened when I was a little more skeptical that it was going to happen. Um, so here's from Matt, some notes on the war in Eastern Europe and its rapidly propagating consequences. It is incredibly important to recognize that the belligerents in this shit fight have been part of the same polity for polity for over a thousand years, less the last thirty. Right. So the the Ukraine, Russia, and the Ukraine have kind of been uh, under the same. You know, they, they have a lot of ethnic crossover and been under the same sovereign blanket for most of of modern times. Right. The last thirty years have only have been the exception to that rule, and that is something that that is core to understanding why this conflict is taking place. Is that there is a depending on who you talk to, a valid or or what invalid but palpable over whether these two nations 
nations should be set separate countries, whether it be separate sovereigns or whatnot. And and you've got a lot of the ethnic conflicts that have raged for hundreds of years and have a long legacy that play into that. So he, he goes on. I don't say this to diminish the Ukrainian cause in any way whatsoever. Kiev and Lviv are entitled to self-government, independent, of course, of diktats coming from the czar or his low rent postmodern stand in, obviously being uh, referring to Putin. What is being litigated is the legitimacy of this millennial old polity. The ruling step power, whether Muscovite, Tsarist, Mongol or Bolshevik, has made a habit of treating the people who live in what we now call Ukraine like absolute shit. They have every reason and every right to violently re reject the reimposition of Muscovite hegemony. Um, so th this is nothing new. Once again, the, the people who live in the kind of Western regions uh, where where Asia and, and Eurasia, uh, where Europe and Eurasia attach to each other, have always been under threat of conquest from those from the the Russian or Muscovite steppes, whether you know more to the north with the Russian peoples um, or to the south with the Mongols, right? So and, and once again, thinking about this only in terms of the post-Cold War order where we drew these somewhat arbitrary lines of nationhood, um, that's that's not the right way to be thinking about these things. And you can't see this conflict other than through its historical perspective. Speaking about historical perspective, a very interesting exchange happened in Congress this week um, between Marco Ru Senator Marco Rubio and Undersecretary of, uh, Undersecretary of State of Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, who is Victoria Newland. She has quite a resume in public service. United States Ambassador to NATO under George W. Bush, spokesperson for the United States Department of State under Barack Obama, succeeded by Jen Psaki, of all people, Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs uh, towards the later Obama years, and then came back into uh, government service uh, after Donald Trump was gone and is now the Undersecretary of State of Political Affairs. Um, Victoria Newland has quite a history with the Russia-Ukraine conflict because as is described in all of her personal materials, Newland was the lead U.S. point person for the Revolution of Dignity. The Revolution of Dignity, as we all know, was the Orange Revolution, the street revolution in the Ukraine in 2014 that overthrew a more Russian-friendly president at such time, installed a a more independent, more Western-friendly uh, uh, regime. And the, really, that was the pretext to this entire conflict. It, it, everyone who thinks that this war started two two years ago is missing kind of the point. This has just been an escalation of the war that was raging in this region for many years, whether the start was the revolution of dignity uh, or uh, Vladimir Putin's responsive invasion of Crimea and its annexation. But either way, Victoria Newland was coordinating with non-governmental organizations on the ground in the Ukraine to provide them financial support on a $1 billion loan guarantee and the promise of additional American support if uh, if the the revolution, if the, the coup against the Russian president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, at such time succeeded. So once again, this is one of the events that is key to the causality of this situation, right? Everyone once again will say, well, if you just acknowledge causal factors and realities that, of course, you're you're blaming the United States or the West and saying that it's our fault, quote unquote, that Vladimir Putin invaded his neighboring Ukraine uh, instead of just once again acknowledging causal realities. But once again, Victoria Newland has quite a long and sordid history of activity in this region. And her she's very much a neocon. Her beliefs are that the United States needs to exercise its power and its authority to mold the, the international order in its image. And if that means, you know, getting involved in foreign affairs and 
and overthrowing a government or helping one country invade its neighbor or arming it in order to prevent an invasion, then, hey, the, the United States interests are relevant to all of these situations and we need to get involved. OK, so what happened here this week with her and Marco Rubio? Um, So Glenn Greenwald has a fantastic piece on this. Victoria Newland, Ukraine has biological research facilities. Worried Russia may seize them. OK. So um, over the past couple months, there's been some some rumors going around that there are bioweapons or, or biosecurity labs in the Ukraine. And uh, those those claims have been fact checked a number of times. And this has all been labeled misinformation or a false conspiracy theory. As Greenwald explains, self-anointed fact checkers in the U- U.S. corporate press have spent two weeks mocking his disinformation and a false conspiracy theory. The claim that Ukraine has biological weapon labs, either alone or with U.S. support. They never presented any, any evidence for their ruling. How could they possibly know? How could they prove the negative? But nonetheless, they invoke their characteristically authoritative above it, uh, above it all tone of self-assurance and self-arrogance right to the decree of truth, definitively labeling such a false claim. Okay, so the idea that there were any bioweapons labs uh, in Ukraine or that the Ukraine has any uh, uh, bioweapons was just brushed aside as misinformation and nonsense. So that brings us to yesterday in Congress when uh, Victoria Newland is appearing and speaking, being questioned by Marco Rubio. And ostensibly, Senator Rubio was there to debunk these claims that there are chemical weapons labs in the Ukraine. And he smugly asked Newland, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? And uh, let's go to Greenwald. Rubio undoubtedly expected a flat denial by Newland, thus providing further proof that such speculation is dastardly fake news emanating from the Kremlin, the CCP or QAnon. Instead, Newland did something completely uncharacteristic for her, for neocons and for senior U.S. foreign policy officials. For some reason, she told a version of the truth. Her answer visibly stunned Rubio, who, as soon as he realized the damage she was doing to the U.S. messaging campaign by telling the truth, interrupted her and demanded that she instead affirm that if a biological attack were to occur, everyone should be 100 percent sure that it was Russia who did it. Okay, so what was her answer? Rubio asked this question. The question is, does the Ukraine possess chemical or biological weapons? Newland does not deny it at all. She goes, uh, Ukraine has a biological research facilities. And we are now, in fact, quite concerned that Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of those labs. So we were working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of Russian forces should they approach. So apparently this was not the answer that Marco Rubio was expecting. I mean, he he was asking this very blithe and glib question in order for it to be debunked. Right. right? You know, if I ask uh, whether the Ukraine has any bioweapons labs and uh, th- this high ranking defense official can just brush that insinuation or that claim aside side, then, okay, we've made it look foolish. And this is clearly a conspiracy theory. That's not what happened. I mean, Newland kind of soft acknowledged that there are some labs studying chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine. And this and to that effect, because this is a matter of national security, that if we're going to get involved in this conflict, that Ukraine and its Western allies and the countries that pretty much everyone who is lined up in support of Ukraine does not want Russia to seize these labs and whatever the materials are that are being made there. And then, yes, Rubio, Rubio proceeded to try to clean up the situation by saying, oh, wait, it seems it's been revealed that there are bio, bio uh, weapon labs there. Well, OK, well, what are they? Do they have just a purely defensive posture? And then he asked asks this kind of vague, meaningless question about, well, if there's a biological attack, it clearly was was done by the Russians and Newland, you know, answers in the affirmative. But what does that really tell us? Like, it seems like this 
gives it gives reason or predicate for further inquiry right what are these labs what uh, what's being made there what's being studied there and who's supporting them because there's a lot of claims going on that the u.s does have a number of these labs around the world um and is supporting them um china has gotten to the fray in these claims uh, as greenwald goes the chinese foreign ministry this month claimed that the u.s has 336 labs in 30 countries under its control including 26 in ukraine alone once again i i have no dog in this hunt i don't want to blame the United States. I don't want to believe that the United States is the bad actor or is being dishonest. But there's a claim that the United States is supporting the study of biological weapons abroad in certain hot button countries. And Victoria Newland seems to have acknowledged that those claims are true. Right. OK, so now it seems like we need to we need to investigate this further, like more needs to be be revealed about what's going on at those labs. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll see if this topic just disappears into the ether or if there is further inquiry or if the Russians go ahead and it, there's evidence or documentary footage revealed of them capturing such a lab. Um, but it was very interesting. And I think if you want to understand more about the situation, some of the I mean, it's just so such a loaded word to to use the term fault. But to the extent that we can are, should not be surprised that Vladimir Putin took a you know, Western provocation in involving itself in affairs in its neighboring country um, as as some sort of provocation. The roles of the role of Victoria Newland and people of her ilk and other State Department employees, that's something to look into. And I think she's she's an unfortunate you know, character who unfortunately is very critical to the scenario. Okay, so what's the military situation on the ground as it stands right now? Last week, I interviewed Samuel Boria, who's an expert on these topics, who described how everybody was probably jumping and being uh, jumping to too many conclusions and being a little too reactive to just the first few days of the war um, and understanding that while the Russian forces probably did not perform as well as had been anticipated and encountered a number of logistical challenges and the Ukrainian re resistance was stiffer, that this only told so much because uh, all, the Russian forces and just war in general takes longer to play out that, you know, given the the asymmetrical uh, or the lopsided uh, uh, standing of military force and the Russian military's heavy, heavy reliance on heavy artillery as opposed to air power, it was just inevitable that this conflict was going to drag out a little bit longer. As he put it, these wars move at the speed of tanks, not tweets. OK, so a week later, where do we stand? So obviously, it's incredibly difficult to find good and to verify information on this. But a couple people that I found who do seem pretty, uh, uh, pretty credible on the topic. One individual is Bill Roggio. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Um, he summarized what he sees as the situation on the ground right now. And he believes that things are starting to look not so great for the Ukrainian military. They have held up and fought, fought bravely and admirably. Um, but from what he's seen, the strategic situation for Ukrainian force in Kiev and the East is not good. There hasn't been a lot of movement by the Russians overall. However, it appears that the Russians are consolidating their positions, preparing and positioning, and moving with the goal of encirclement in several key regions. Russian forces are moving to cut off the far eastern areas close to the Donbass region, both north northeast of Marjapul and east of Izium. There are also credible reports the Russians are seeking to march on the city of Dnipro on the Dnieper River. And if the Russians can take this region, then the eastern half of Ukraine would be cut. Um, so, OK, it, it seems that just the inevitable uh, that the 
the totality and the weight of Russian forces just wearing down the Ukrainians. And although they've they've inflicted far more damage on the Russians than anticipated, just uh, uh, eventually this this weight, you know, it's like a seven game series um, amongst, you know, the first seed and the eighth seed in the NBA playoffs. Eventually, while the, the first, the, you know, number one seed has more firepower, more manpower, they might have trouble over the first couple games. But across a, a longer sample size of a seven game series, eventually the stronger team wins out. And that seems to be what's happening here. Okay, so what is that? What is the diplomatic situation? Um, there have been apparently there have been negotiations going on between the parties. Peers that um, Israeli President Naftali Bennett or sorry, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has been trying to intervene here. And he was meeting with Putin this week and that the pro- proposal put forth was deemed difficult, but not impossible. And it's worse than what Zelensky would have gotten before the invasion. But the gaps between the sides are not great. So what are the specifics here? This piece in the Jerusalem Post mentions Zelensky can fortify Ukraine's independence, but will have to pay a heavy price. Assumptions are that he will be forced to give up the contested Donbass region, officially recognize the pro-Russian dissidents in the Ukraine, pledge that Ukraine will not join NATO, shrink his army and declare neutrality. If he declines the proposal, the outcome may be terrible. Perhaps tens of thousands of Ukrainians will die, and there's a high probability that this country will completely lose its independence. So it looks like Putin's going to achieve a number of his objectives just as at a heavier cost than he was anticipating. And this once again speaks to simple, simple strategic realities that the military imbalance between the two countries was just too great. And given Putin's will, given his willingness to take to uh, uh, to shoulder those costs um, and bear them, which, you know, given Russian, Russian history, they've always been been willing to bear significant costs in war. It was just inevitable that this conflict was going to turn out this way. Who knows? There could be a, a miraculous defeat of the Russian army. Um, there could be a, a there have been no no shortage of rumors of low morale and these logistical problems that we've mentioned. Who knows? There could be a brave last in and a turnaround by the Ukraine, but it is looking like we are fast approaching some sort of diplomatic solution over the next week or so um, based on just the inevitable military reality that that the Russian forces are encircling key regions of the Ukraine and the Ukrainian forces can only hold on for so much longer. OK, so what other key issues are popping up right now related to this situation? Obviously, gas. I am sure if you're in the United States right now, you have seen gas prices and they are eye popping crazy and out of control according to gas buddy data the average price of diesel in the u.s has reached five dollars per gallon this week that is the highest level ever recorded um, another inevitability that you know that vladimir putin smarter than people seem some people want to give him credit for he had been preparing for this for a while and in, just incrementally made the west and western europe dependent on russia uh for natural resources like oil and gas and uh, to the it, and put us in a position where if they wanted to, if we took a hostile position towards Russia and Putin, there was going to be pain at the gas pump. And that seems to be what we're seeing right now. Um, so we've got sky high prices. I mean, it has an incredible inflationary effect um, uh, on the American economy. And now, you know, some people are even wondering, wait, are, are, is the Fed even going to have to go ahead and raise raise rates? Are we going to have to cut off quantitative easing because an increase in gas prices seems to be soaking up all the money? I mean, that that is pumping the brakes on the economy more than a rise in interest rates. Um, so how are we adapting to this? How are we responding? Well, we're the U.S., obviously, with Russia, uh, now that Joe Biden has declared 
an embargo on Russian oil and gas that we will not be taking it and we're trying to squeeze Russia on its natural resources. We got to look to our, our other suppliers. Um, at least the initial overture to Saudi Arabia and the UAE did not go very well. Um, Saudi and Emirati leaders declined calls with Biden during Ukraine crisis. Apparently this week, President Biden reached out to leaders of uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE to try to convince them to uh, increase uh, OPEC oil production to to replace Russian supply. Um, the first call did not go so well. It, it looks like the UAE has turned around a little bit and you know responded and mentioned that they are in favor of increasing production and will advocate for increased production by OPEC. But why are we ha- having so much trouble? We've been close allies with Saudi Arabia for God knows how long, and they've always been been, I mean, you, some could say that the American economy, um, uh, the engine of the American economy has been cheap gas from this region, given our strong strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia over the years. Well, you know, it, oil is not the only factor that determines the quality and health of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has deteriorated quite a bit since Joe Biden has taken office uh, as a Wall Street Journal piece summarizes the Saudis have signaled that their relationship with Washington is deteriorated under the Biden administration and they want more support for their intervention in Yemen's civil war, help with their own civilian nuclear program as Iran's moves ahead, and legal immunity for Prince Mohammed bin Sultan in the U.S. as Saudi officials said as the crown prince faces multiple lawsuits uh, over the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. Okay, so what's been going on in Saudi Arabia in recent years? Saudi Arabia has uh, made overtures to the West. It's trying to modernize. You've got a very young crown prince, Saudi crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's wanted to modernize the nation, um, granted additional uh, additional rights to women, has taken a kinder and softer approach towards Israel for a number of reasons, further integration into the world economy, and also as a counter as, as a counterweight to the growing influence of Iran. Um, Iran is a Shiite Muslim country. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Muslim country. And those are we could, one could say that those are the two most prominent countries of those two sects of Islam, right? So in playing off in the enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, Saudi Arabia has been warming up to the West. And also, you know, Donald Trump did seem to be very forgiving of some of the uh, the marks on the Saudi Arabian record and was welcoming the the overtures of, of the Saudi Arabians and Prince uh, bin Salman. Um, that has been reversed under Joe Biden. And all of a sudden, you know, if you if we do not support the strategic interest of our allies, we can't be surprised when they don't support our strategic interests and they're not as forthcoming. So this, the sullying of this relationship, once again, harms our strategic interests because we rely, we have a certain dependence on these countries for natural resources. Okay. And if we, we just have to accept the reality that the countries that have access to oil and gas for the most part are not countries that conduct themselves in ways that we uh, always approve of. All right. So we have to choose amongst a rogue gallery of potential bad actors that if we don't want to, if we're not going to be supplied by Russia, we may have to be supplied by the Saudi Arabians, may have to be supplied by the Venezuelans. And there's even been some talk of releasing any number of sanctions on Venezuela in exchange for uh, uh, an increase in in oil supply. So uh, it's just a reality that you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And the idea that we can go and get involved in all these different conflicts around the world without affecting our interests, really, as you see. 
you you want to get involved in the Ukraine Russia conflict. Okay, well that you're gonna you know pull a lever in one direction that's going to affect uh, energy production, your ass your access to energy uh, over here, and you're gonna have to go pull another lever in the other direction to warm up to an otherwise um, hostile nation or someone you know whose values you don't do not support over here. Um, and the, these are just the inevitabilities and the realities of geopolitics. Um, so those are ones that are are stark and in the face of every American right now because. This, this could get really bad. I mean, yes, well, let's hope that OPEC jacks up production. Um, there have been some... It, it, we can wake up in the morning tomorrow and see if this is this is the case. But one gas futures analyst that I follow says that tomorrow we're going to expect an absolute massive drop in the price of oil because of the signals from OPEC that they're increasing production. But this is clearly a messy situation and our, our supply options have been constricted. And we're going to have to cozy up to some people who we don't necessarily want to cozy up to in order to in order to replace Russian supply. So uh, this could get messy for the American economy, even, you know, a 30 cent. 50 cent dollar uh, across the board rise in in oil prices for a sustained period of time is going to squeeze a lot of people. And while a lot of politicians can make these lofty overtures and appeals to American sense of duty and responsibility and that, you know, it shouldn't be a sacrifice for us to drive less or have to deal with higher gas and oil prices in order to stand on principle with the fine people of the Ukraine. I I don't think a lot of American people are going to feel that way. Okay, and that that is another another reason why we need to question what truly our interests. While we would like to be able to enforce justice and righteousness all across the globe, that the attempt at one we we those things aren't necessarily in our control, and they also have responses in second and third and fourth order impacts that might not be so pleasant. So we really have to have a more judicious and sensible consideration of these interests. And if we thought we could avoid these issues and these topics and staring these questions right in the face before, well, I think we all know we. Can't we cannot avoid the questions any longer? Um, so who knows? By next week, we could see a ceasefire and a diplomatic resolution. Things could implode, get even messier, and the country could fall into chaos. Or who knows? The the Russian army, the the rumors of their impending collapse from some corners of the internet and national security could turn out to be correct. Incredibly interesting times, uh, needless to say. Um, so that is the my summary of as many interesting newsworthy angles on the Russia-Ukraine conflict as, as I could fit in here, folks. Um, coming up once again, we have Chris Voss, former head FBI kidnap negotiator and my good friend and founder of Beyond Media, Nicole Benam. We will be talking about the tinder swindler get into some culture and how you can protect yourself from being defrauded or being the victim of one of these characters like the tinder swindler or god knows who so it should be a really interesting discussion please stick around for it and this is the prevailing narrative and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break So noted romantic philosopher Chris Rock once said, on a first date, you're not meeting someone, you're meeting their representative. That idea has taken on disturbingly heightened meaning in the era of dating apps, with the internet facilitating reach and increasing the opportunities for deception. This issue has been top of mind recently with the release and popularity of the Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler, telling the story of Shimon Hayut, a.k.a. Simon Laviv, who would meet women on the dating app Tinder, posing as a wealthy jet-setting diamond mogul, woo them with gifts, trips, and emotional rescue, only to con the women out of millions of dollars. Here to discuss the topic today, we have Chris Voss, former lead international kidnap negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, founder of the Black Swan Group, and author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Also, we have my good friend, Nicole Benam, founder of the discussion platform Beyond Media, Web3 advisor and interviewer, and always a shrewd observer of these dynamics. Chris, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. It's fun to be here. Fantastic. So, um, 
you know, Chris, obviously you've developed so many incredible insights about human nature and interaction through your experiences, given the most intense uh, uh, kidnapping um, and, and, you know, hostage negotiation situations. And these are the types of things that kind of play into the social dynamics that we see going on in the digital sphere and the digital dating sphere. Um, you know, in your book, you kind of describe what you're doing as discussing the t- techniques and principles that hold the keys to unlock profitable human interactions in every domain. And those those principles can obviously be very profitable and used for for good and for for evil. And, you know, one in particular that seems to be prevalent with the the Tinder swindler and one that you discuss quite a bit in your book is a as a, a principle called mirroring um, the way it's described as a basic but profound biological principle. We fear what's different and are drawn to what's similar in that using mirroring and, you know, it, it could be mimicking vocal tonation, body language, speech patterns, vocabulary or just showing common interest is a way to build rapport, um, build trust and and essentially, you know, win someone over. Uh, maybe you could get into a little bit of, of mirroring, you know, and, and kind of the what's underlying that principle, how it's used, and how sometimes, you know, those who wish to do us wrong, those fraudsters like the Tinder swindler might use that, you know, as one of the tools in their toolkit. Yeah, well, it's, it's really about getting the other person to open up and there are a variety of ways to try to get people to open up. And similarly, similarities, you know, if you're like me, what some people might refer to as common ground is one way. And, you know, con man, uh, Tinder swindler, anybody that's doing that stuff, you know, they're not care. They don't care about what works in a majority of people. They're just looking for people to have the vulnerabilities to that. So, you know, they just keep fishing until they get they find a fish that likes that bait, so to speak. And and that's how they hit on it. And, and they know that uh, most people don't, but they're enough to do that. They just keep fishing until they hit it. And what would you say if a person is thinking about and trying to be self-analytical of their own uh, vulnerabilities of being one of those people who might be susceptible or might have blind spots? Well, you know, and Nicole and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, so I know she's got some stuff, some some uh, enlightening thoughts to share on it. No doubt. But as far as, you know, uh, trust your instinct, trust your in- intuition. You know, people, they they might get overridden by the con, so to speak, or, you know, this mm-hmm. is the uh, somebody like this very assertive in trying to overcome um, your obstacles and your resistance by um, uh, preying on your weaknesses, but your initial intuition is something is wrong. Mm-hmm. You should be willing to listen to that. And, and that's kind of what you were telling me earlier. Wasn't it, Nicole? Yeah. Um, I remember, I mean, multiple times cause you know, Chris is a mentor to me. So if I'm in situations where I've, I felt weird, I have contacted him. And I remember multiple times when I couldn't tell if I was nervous or excited, he'd be like, well, you should listen to that because it's so Mm -hmm. easy to confuse the two. Like, like, does this person, is this person making me like anxious, nervous, or am I super excited to see him? But if you really listen to yourself, like you have the answer. And Chris, you always talk about how, you know, women have really good intuition and how important it is to sharpen that. And it's true. I mean, there's, there's nothing better and listening to yourself when it comes to these types because they're so charismatic and they're so charming and they're so i mean it's easy to fall for if you don't know you know what the telltale signs are 
And, and so, Nicole, obviously, uh, I'm sure you've never encountered or are you uh, very early on sniffed out anyone who might be as malicious as the Tinder swindler. But uh, Chris Rock's admonition that you're meeting somebody's representative, I imagine that is rang true in the digital dating world and your experiences. I don't know what uh, uh, I, I imagine that that's something that uh, is pretty prevalent when you're meeting people, at least initially online. That they send out their representative, meaning like a completely different version of who they are. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's it's probably easier to do that on a dating app. The other thing with dating apps is like in the case of the, the Tinder swindler, he had all these photos with private jets and nice clothes. And it looked like he was living a really fancy lifestyle. And, mm. you know, women... I don't speak for every single woman, but, but women generally look for men who are providers and men, you know, who look like they're at least mildly successful. And, and he was showing that he's very successful just just with images. So with that alone, and he wasn't bad looking either, a majority of women are already going to swipe right just seeing that. So mm-hmm. that's. And you know something after the initial initial impression, though, obviously, to get to the point at which uh, that he, that he kind of uh, pulled these women to where they're, they're giving up their life savings in order to supposedly rescue him from dire circumstances. And um, he, he had to come up with a number of stories that but would not necessarily make sense that would tip off and and. Uh, understanding that a woman's intuition is very powerful that their instincts probably were tipped off uh that something was going on but they somehow explain it away and this is something that i see often with with fraudsters in various walks of life is that their story gets more complicated and the you have to layer on more and more excuses for why it makes sense and it seems one of the fascinating dynamics is that people keep on finding ways to make it make sense and some people would label this confirmation bias that once they've believed that a person is genuine or holds um, promise that the relationship with this person holds a lot of promise for them that they'll keep on making internal excuses to justify whatever inconsistencies there are in their story I don't know Chris would you describe that as confirmation bias or, or where, what's that dynamic where people um, kind of tell themselves lies to to explain away inconsistencies in a story of someone they want to trust? Yeah, Pete, yeah, exactly. There's a confirmation bias of people, you know, people are starting to get themselves in a little bit deeper. You know, the, the ego starts to override, you know, I can't be fooled or I'm a trusting person. You mm-hmm. know, trustworthy people trust, uh, which, you know, then can potentially make you vulnerable without a sounding board, somebody to talk to that you're willing to listen to. And, you know, then Nicole was talking and we've talked about a lot of stuff. You know, she she's she said, hey, you know, I'm talking to this guy. This doesn't head up. This is this is what doesn't make sense to me. And I'll say, OK, yeah, it, that doesn't make sense. But if you want to navigate it, navigate it with your eyes open. You know, don't, don't kid yourself as to as to what you're looking at. So in many cases, you know, trusted sounding board will help a lot of people navigate these kind of issues because you can get caught up in your own uh, ego looking for the best in other people, which a kind man preys on. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, look, they're looking for that weakness and that vulnerability. And if you don't have somebody to talk it out with, then you begin to ignore your intuition that something's wrong and they're taking advantage of an aspect of your nature that uh, they figure that can override what your gut instinct is telling you. No or, doubt. or uh, yeah, you start thinking that you're crazy. But the other thing I wanted to bring up about why... Does I that mean I'm not crazy? <laughs> <laughs> um, you're crazy in the best way. But 
I think I think we all are. But I I think the thing that really stands out here to me, especially when you're talking about, you know, people lying to themselves. I think in many cases I've seen whether whether you're a man or a woman, if you like someone enough, you'll start lying to yourself. You'll make excuses for their behavior and that's when it gets dangerous. So I think the Tinder swindler took people to that point. But and the way that he did it, from what I saw, was becoming very hot and cold because that feels like gambling. You don't know when he's going to contact you. He's so unpredictable that every time he does contact you, it feels like a reward. There are men who, who strategically do that to women. I've, I've had friends who told me they do that as like a game strategy. So that's something that, that I saw him doing. And then also the fact that he was always away, you know, when people are in long distance relationships and that's what that was, um, it, it makes you miss the other person. You start fantasizing about them. And he knew that. And that's when he would hit that. Like the girl is sitting there thinking this may be the love of my life. Oh my God, he's in danger. Of course I'm going to wire money to him. This could be my husband. That's what's <laughs> and, happening. And do you think that there's any element of shame in that certain people get into a situation where, once again, instincts are tipped off that something's wrong, but they don't go to a sounding board because of the shame that if they do go to the sounding board and it turns out that the, sa- the sounding board gives them the input they don't want to hear, that they felt feel ashamed that they were even led on to this point? Yeah, I think... I think that's true. But also I think that that whoever is in that situation, sorry to take this in a different direction, but needs to choose better friends. I have no problem calling, you know, Chris and telling him, this is how I feel. I feel attracted to this man who's potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think he would judge me for feeling that way. Like the, you know, human beings have normal emotions. I think it's normal even to feel attracted to a guy who may be a con artist. He's using tactics that are, are, you know, historically they work. So mm-hmm. that's, I think that's a matter of, you know, overcoming shame by choosing the right friends. That's no doubt. Um, another one of these tactics and principles that, that once again could be used for good and for evil is reciprocity. Um, and this is something that, that, is uh, some a little difficult to frame within um, the notion of hot and cold because the, the idea is that he wined and dined these women he gave them really uh, aggressive gifts right off the bat and that kind of endeared them and turns out that they were gifts bought with the purchased with the money that he had swindled from the last victim of the crime and kind of can perpetuates this kind of ponzi scheme but um how powerful is that that principle of reciprocity that that once someone uh engages in an act of generosity in your favor that you're then endeared to to participate in one for them even if it's one that you don't necessarily feel great about uh you know that's an interesting question too because um basically when when we teach the black swan method and we've got enough data to, to back this up from our own experience basically three types of people in the world when it comes to interaction conflict etc fight flight make friends um, and the descendants from the caveman days that we're at, that we descended from, you know, uh, they saw a saber-toothed tiger on a jungle path. They fought it. They ran from it. They made friends with it. Person who couldn't make up their mind, the caveman couldn't make up their mind. They got eaten, and they don't have any ancestors. <laughs> so, one of the three types, you know, the make friends type is extremely vulnerable to reciprocity. Now, the other two, the assertive and the analytical type. You know, the sort of, for lack of a better uh, better poster child, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, the assertive negotiator, I'm a, I'm a natural born assertive. I get something, I figure I should have had it all along. 
I, so therefore, I don't, you know, I, my, my natural type is to not recognize reciprocity a whole lot. You, you know, you, you, you know, if you're, if you're uh, a love interest and you whine and dine me, I'm going to say, hey, I, I deserve that all along. I'm not going to feel any guilt. The, the an- analytical type, they're wary of reciprocity. It's real hard to get them to take anything because they're going to they're going to be worried about triggering reciprocity. Somebody pointed out to me in a big bang theory, an episode I didn't see, you know, somebody somebody gave Sheldon, you know, the real smart dude a gift. And as soon as as soon as I handed it to him, he dropped it. He said, that's not a gift. That's an obligation. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> now, but the accommodating. The make friends, the relationship, total relationship oriented type. They're very vulnerable to reciprocity. And that's that's what I was saying before. The con man, it's not that these things work on most people. Two out of three people, reciprocity is a no go. But one in three, it's very powerful. So you just start you just start looking for that fish and and you're gonna hook them. Yeah, yeah. They, it seems another one of the, the kind of preternatural skills that these people have is to be able to sniff out the vulnerable parties. And right. uh, it's something it's it, it, luckily I early on in my career and just kind of being around here in the city of Los Angeles where you're always swimming with the sharks. Luckily came a, a, a early on with the stakes low and with me not in the crosshairs came across some of these people who are just able to lie beyond what a normal person has the capacity to do. And, and you, you don't imagine that people like this could actually exist. And if they did, how they sleep at night but they somehow they somehow sell themselves on whatever the lies are and and they continue to perpetuate it i mean nicole i imagine you know both in the, the kind of relation relation sorry relationship wise and professionally i mean you've experienced people like this uh uh in your ventures around the los angeles business and romantic community yes so yeah not just not just romantically but work-wise i mean I I do recall there was something professionally that happened where someone was, you know, lying profusely. And I I took it to Chris. I may have discussed it with you. And Chris said to me, you know, I don't know if you should completely rule this guy out because I want you to sort of observe the way that they operate. You don't need to get too close you know, don't obviously don't emotionally get in bed with this person, but, but he's like, I want you to see what people are capable of so that you have the intuition to identify it later on. Um, but you know, when you were talking, uh, Chris about the analytical personality type, um, it made me think about, it made me think about, um, when girls date guys, who they later identify as narcissists, they sort of become obsessive. I don't know if you guys have seen, you know, a woman who has gone through a bad relationship. All of a sudden she's like worried that every other guy is a narcissist, just like her ex. So, so when that happens, they, they start looking for telltale signs. One of them is love bombing. And what falls under that category is the lavish spending, the excessive gifts, the early, you know, professing your love. So to types like that, especially the ones who have already been through it, this is so easily identifiable. The only danger there is when you start thinking that everything's a con. So, uh, you know, these girls that got swindled, I think probably 
are are on the lookout constantly and maybe now they have a wall up that they can't really put down because every nice act that comes their way every gift that comes their way they're like is he trying to manipulate me <laughs> you know so there's that danger too yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and so one, and this kind of falls a little more squarely within uh, under the umbrella of negotiation, where a lot of these cons do eventually turn into once once the, the mark is tipped off that something's wrong, that they've departed with certain funds and are now at the point where they're supposed to get it back, but they're having a tough time getting it back. It, it There seems to be this the, uh, uh, this kind of pattern that always plays out where the con man promises the money is going to be returned by a certain day or at a certain place or through a certain mechanism, um, sends a check or or it even establishes a meetup place, but then somehow either a check bounces or or the, the meetup goes awry. And yet they're able to continue to draw the person along, still believing that they're some way somehow going to get their get their money back. Um, it feels like a, a kind of a strategy that is has be considered incrementalism or something with the carrot on a stick. I don't know, Chris, how do you see that dynamic where they continue to make it to, to keep the, the, the return of the funds just barely out of reach? Yeah, well, it's a it's a great game. I mean, it's a hustle. It's a it's a way any hustler, any con artist keeps going, and it's it's hard to extricate for any human being. It's hard to extricate yourself from that dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, cutting your losses. You know, it, it's a business problem, sunk costs. I can't walk away from this deal. I've wasted yeah. too much money on it already. Mm-hmm. You know, so these these are tough decisions to make, and then being embarrassed by having made the mistake. Uh, you know, er- everybody's going to get con somewhere along the line. It's uh, it's not uh, making a mistake is not the sin. The sin is not learning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, be willing to be smarter today than you were yesterday. And cutting your losses is a tough thing to do, but often the smartest thing to do, whether the person meant to con you or whether they were just taking you. Uh, because they couldn't help themselves. I mean, you mm-hmm. get this sunk cost thing, you get your ego involved, you know, however they trigger you. Turning and, and walking away from your loss is a very hard thing to do. And in many cases, one of the smartest things any person can do, but it's very hard. And so what do you think is that internal angst that prevents someone that they don't that they don't want to be, believe that they were conned, that they still have some hope in kind of the, the long tail of confirmation bias that, OK, not everything that I initially believed was was wrong. And I'm going to look uh, look for any any um, any elements that kind of confirm my initial impressions. Yeah, it's mostly uh, being unwilling to just accept the loss and move mm-hmm. on. You know, there's there's a you know you, you lost you lost this much money. You you think you could get it back? I mean, it's it's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Whether it's just kind of a con again, you know, a, a liar or someone whose behavior is just really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, when you sunk uh, things into the relationship, emotions, money, time. Each one of these has a multiplying effect, which is very hard to walk away from. But actually, everybody should sort of practice it in small stakes, so that you just don't get slaughtered on 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 a big stakes uh, loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One other dynamic that seemed to play with the Tinder swindler was kind of the the fulcrum at which he the the fulcrum of his con was at the point at which he mentioned that he would he sent he would send the mark pictures of his bodyguard bloody and bleeding and mentioned that he was in in danger and uh, that he needed he needed access to their credit cards or needed money because his enemies had cut off all his finances and he was in trouble and that seems to trigger a a certain 
kind of rescue response that's uh, very much inherent with with a lot of females um and uh, it would maybe seem that females are uniquely in their their desire to be nurturing and protective and and you know and to sort of sometimes rescue men who seem to be in peril um that really played on that i mean nicole is that how you see it yeah it's definitely how i see it um and and that's part of the strategy that's why he hooks them first makes them feel like they're actually in a committed relationship. If you saw the video that he sent to everybody, every single woman got the same video. Yeah. I love you. I miss you. You know, f- finally a woman hears this and she's like, oh, maybe this is real. Maybe this is something. Then the guy's in danger. Boom. Of course I'm going to come save, you know, save his ass. Mm-hmm. I love him. That's what, that's what, that's the response that he elicited. And so, yeah, yeah, I'd imagine that that instinct is very powerful with females. I mean, Chris, you know, uh, m- many of your situations with the FBI, you were dealing with uh, not not nice nurturing females, but some harsh, harsh dudes out there uh, from, you know, various terrorist groups in the Middle East who had kidnapped individuals. I mean, is there, uh, you know, any way to utilize that in high stakes negotiations of that sort um, where, you know, you can um almost uh, even even when negotiating with someone that that uh it's very transparently an enemy can kind of appeal to a sense of sympathy or danger even to you know uh, at first glance very harsh and and br- brusque individuals yeah well from from my world what there's a two different issues of what works in a short term and what works in a in a long term like a, as ridiculous as it sounds every hostage negotiator is going to want to be able to be prepared to meet the adversary on another battlefield and still be able to deal with them out Mm -hmm. of respect. So there's a, there's a very long-term perspective for any smart negotiator, whether it be a hostage negotiator or whether it be in business and personal life. Now, you know, that's to ignore tremendous short-term scores that you're going to roll up. And, and that's what a con is all about. I mean, that, that in a long-term gain that's rolling up as much as possible, you know, uh, again, Nicole, Nicole and I were talking about this earlier, you know, the Ponzi scheme of love, if you will mm. you know it's uh it's running stand just staying ahead of your losses keeping a, a big scores coming in in front of you because you know the the the, the bridge behind you is is burning mm-hmm. all you got to do is keep going and that's short-term gain ultimately a realization that the long-term loss is coming you know i'm, mm-hmm. I'm my world uh, i'm always looking for long-term relationships mm-hmm. no doubt um more to brass tacks. Are there any tip-offs? Are there any tricks from body language, voice, langu- uh, linguistics, anything that do kind of are there? Is there a cheat sheet to to spot a liar? It's mostly, first of all, when things don't add up. But mm. a, a, a liar of this type is going to be very assertive in their lies, and so it's it's when the stuff doesn't add up they're, they're going to come at you you know it's almost the phrase gaslighting i mean they're throwing a lot of stuff out you trying to trying to get you to doubt yourself by being very aggressive so the more aggressive the other side is in convincing you when you disbelieve there's a fine line are they aggressive in trying to convince you or when somebody's telling the truth and you express disbelief their their response is like you're an it, you know, and, and they get they get they get aggressive, but in a way to withdraw, like, look, you're so stupid that you're not going to believe me. I'm going to cut off the relationship right now, mm-hmm. whereas and, and they mean it. Um, they are actually angry at you. And it's a very fine line between the aggressive attack for not believing them 
and the, the con artist is going to commit you aggressively, assertively, the Pinocchio effect, if you will, which is the more words used to try to convince you because they know they're lying. And so then in the face of your disbelief, they increase the onslaught to try to get you to believe the lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Uh, it, it seems like they're every hey if people anyone who'd figured out how to tell a liar right off the bat would go be at the world series of poker right now but at some point it's about you know uh, drawing it out a lo- little larger sample size and seeing if somebody's story adds up uh, and, I mean, and i'll throw i'll throw something at you real quick because that's an interesting analogy but the people mm-hmm. that are really good at poker they find you know a poker player by the other side's tell i mean they, their gut instinct will be telling them let me let me take the loss because i've got to confirm what i'm seeing hmm. Uh, so, you know, by the other side's tell, take the loss. I saw I saw Daniel Negreanu, I think it was, do this in, in poker one time. He looked at the guy the other side and he said, you're, you're holding two face cards and a deuce. Now, that's what the guy had in his hand. But the only way he could find out was he had to be willing to go ahead and call the bluff on the other side to find mm-hmm. out for, for sure. So what's the translation to real life? If you assume that some if you're concerned that somebody's lying to you. You know, find a way to confirm that it's a lie as opposed to don't confirm it and then be willing to be gas gaslighted or, mm-hmm. or gaslit, you know, whatever the verbiage is. Sure. So I feel like a lot of people are hesitant to be hesitant to make a prediction that might end up being wrong. But if they end up or if they make an assertion that turns out to be inaccurate, that'll st- even if it's inaccurate, they'll st- it'll still add to their data set of information. Help her right. make more informed decisions going forward. Right. Yeah, right. definitely seems that it's something that is the uh, if you can get past it, it's a hallmark of a of a shrewd negotiator. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Um, Nicole, you, you know, kind of going to a little more uh, kind of practical matters of this digital dating world that the Tinder swindler, um, uh, he cranked it up to 12. But a lot of other guys, while they may not necessarily be running cons and trying to separate human beings from their money fraudulently, they are, you know, as we go back to showing the representative, kind of not showing themselves, but they're representative. Um, they they seem to kind of depart from usual, so typical social behavior in trying to uh, peacock, show off their their assets and resources and engage in kind of some strange behavior in, in trying to kind of accelerate uh, anything short of pretty much uh, breaking out their bank statements and showing uh, uh, how, you know, what they do necessarily have to offer and it kind of seems a little sociopathic to me in some of the examples that you've told me over the years but is that do you kind of see when when uh, guys enter that aspect of the dating world that that they simply stop acting normal and, and it's almost like they're they're trying to bullet point out their profile to you yeah i mean they do it with me and and several of my friends i've seen when they're when they're overly sharing about like how much money they make or, you know, how successful they are and who they know and name dropping and stuff like that. To me, it's not always necessarily a con, but a sign of deep insecurity. Like this person feels like they need to be someone else so that I'll like them or that, you know, whoever the person is on the other side can like them. Um, I mean, I think that's stuff to look out for, whether the person's a con artist or not. Of course, we're all on our best behavior in the beginning of the dating phase. Like, 
you know, I, I, I do it too. I always present my best self. I'm the, my most polite. I'm the kindest. I'm, you know, we all do it, but it's like, nobody is that perfect. And I think, I think like not showing vulnerability over time, uh, not sharing your weaknesses, acting like you're so perfect is a deep sign of insecurity. Do you think this has been accentuated during the era of digital dating when people's attention is so much more fragmented and people aren't, you know, typically if you ended up on a date with someone previously, you had to meet them in a social situation or through a friend. And in the era of digital dating, whether it's through an actual app or just kind of by happenstance, incidentally on another social media platform, that that people are just more inclined to uh, develop their facade because that's how, how everybody else is encountering them for the first time anyways. Oh, a thousand percent. Are you kidding me? I mean, look at how many people take men and women take videos of themselves or photos of themselves getting onto a private jet. I mean, what are we trying to tell each other? <laughs> it's, it's like, seriously, or, or think about, you know, on, on women's and I know some men edit their photos, but like, look how much women are editing their photos so that, you know, they can sort of reach the standard of beauty, which is so hard for women to reach, especially as they get older and o- older. This is just a thing that I've seen, you know, just from, from the women's side, but men, of course, like when I'm out with some of my guy friends and they're single, they'll, if they're like in a suit or we're at a fancy party, they're like, Hey, can you snap a photo of me? Because when a guy is in a suit, it sort of implies that he's a businessman, he's successful, whatever they'll want their watch in the photo. It's, it's just stuff like that, that, that people start getting concerned about when putting out their public image. No doubt. No doubt. So let's shift to, uh, okay, how do we navigate these treacherous waters um, more shrewdly and, you know, without being manipulative, but with, with using with, with an understanding of human nature. Um, Chris, one principle you, you harp on or you mentioned in your book is called unconditional positive regard. You mentioned it um, within the context of negotiations with the terrorist group Abu Sayyaf and uh, uh, the release of an American held hostage, Jeffrey Schilling. And uh, you describe it as real change is only possible when you accept the subject where he or she is at. So it, another way I've heard this described perhaps was pacing and leading um, where you, you have to meet someone and understand where emotionally they're currently at in order to get them emotionally or, or, you know, in terms of any interpersonal relation where you would like them to be. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things you threw in there and both of them are good. And, and I'll tell you something that we've really, since the book came out and, and a number of ways that we've upped the level of our game mm-hmm. really is genuine curiosity. Uh, and there's a lot more neuroscience out there even today than there was when a book came out five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taub's got a book out from several years ago called Anti-Fragile, which I stumbled over recently uh, because he says curiosity is an anti-fragile mindset. Like when you're genuinely curious about the other side, an awful lot of this stuff starts to go away. Now, curiosity is basically a positive mindset. It keeps you out of negative mindsets. When you're in a positive frame of mind, you're smarter. Like when you're genuinely curious, then, you know, you can take a look at the other side. You're not going to get conned because when you're in a positive frame of mind, your pattern recognition comes to you more quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's the self-doubt tends to go away. You can't be in a curious and be in a negative mindset simultaneously. So just genuine curiosity is one of the hacks to protect yourself mm-hmm. because then you're not emotionally invested and you're seeing things, you're far more likely to see things 
for the way that they are. So curiosity, just genuine curiosity, is is a great approach to nearly any human being. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that an extension of genuine curiosity, one that you mentioned, is uh, you mentioned the open-ended question, which uh, can be used, you know, very, uh, uh, very effectively. In uh, uh, you know, what uh, obviously you want that to be an extension of genuine curiosity, but that open-ended questions are, are useful both in kind of tense, nego- you know, the ho- uh, adversarial negotiations, but also um, in order to you know to extend to optimize your personal relationships. See, I appreciate the way that you studied the book. I mean, and of you've gotten what a lot of people have a tendency to get out of it. Like, if you really dig into the book, like, you begin to see the applications for this, like, everywhere, which is also a great way to practice. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, – uh, you're, you're dead on. Open-ended questions are really good for a whole bunch of reasons. And if you're genuinely curious and you ask open-ended questions, then you pull a lot of information about the other side. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, hey, it's uh, guess the the only uh, gate to that or the is is how willing you are to listen and people's patience. And I know that's in short supply these days. I don't know, uh, Nicole, are you feeling similarly in that the this era you've been so active on social audio platforms and uh, and participating in the digital space? Do you feel like people's attention spans, willingness to listen, has been shortened a little bit? I mean, how do you know you, you're you? You're in, involved in kind of rich, extended conversations with a lot of people. I mean, how are you? You know, how are you maintaining some pretty um, uh, extended, maintaining the duration of some of these conversations on some pretty, you know, uh, uh, dense material? I mean, I definitely notice that. And now, now that you mention it, I feel like even my own attention span has been compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I, I don't know. I, I'm. That's how I feel. I'd imagine these interviews are actually a great exercise to ex- extend that attention span and being forced to have these deeper, extensive conversations. Uh, you know, where uh, interviewing uh, people on their expertise. I mean, man, I, I imagine that that hopefully is something that builds those muscles because uh, uh, without something, if you're not cognizant of it, 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 it can really start to get snipped. Absolutely. But the other thing is you also start to notice what you don't care about. Mm -hmm. And and then I I think in terms of like dating or even who you want to work with, you start, you start getting a sense of, you know, do I actually enjoy working with this person, listening to this person? Like being curious about yourself is really important too. That's what, that's what develops your intuition. Like, do I want Chris Voss as a mentor or this other guy who, also looks good on paper, but he bores me when I talk to him. His advice isn't exciting when I tell him I don't feel like he's invested in my problem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so that's what that makes me think of. So it's also good to pay attention to like, what can you pay attention to? What can't you pay attention to? The other thing with curiosity, um, I love what Chris was saying about be curious. The, the only thing I would say uh, as a woman is don't, don't use curiosity as an excuse to become obsessive because again, someone like the Tinder swindler or like a con artist, you could get so curious that you're like, Oh, I just want to understand him. What happened in his childhood that he's like this? Let me fix him. Let me fix him. We all know, know, like sometimes women like projects. So that's something that, that, uh, that made me. Yeah. You know, like this guy's under, 
Yeah, this guy, he's uh, under attack from international terrorists. Oh, guess I got to fix this thing. Why don't I send him uh, my entire life savings, a quarter million dollars, and uh, turn around and five minutes later, he's at a club in, you know, freaking uh, in, uh, Montenegro with uh, some other women. Um, so the kind of core principles of negotiation, I mean, Chris, right in the title of the book, it's never split the difference. Um, and a lot of people, as you describe in the book, see negotiation as compromise. And the two are not analogous terms. Um, one is was very much different. Um, and the way that you describe it is that uh, uh, in terms of a, let's call it um, validity of the demand, in your situations dealing with hostages and, and, and terrorists, the validity of many of their de they, their demands had no validity in the first place, thus giving in or meeting them halfway would not have been a reasonable compromise, right? So in a situation like that where with asymmetrical validity, um, how would you suggest people going about dealing with with difficult um, tense situations where, uh, you know, where they can't, where, where splitting the, di the difference is not uh, a reasonable option and they have to find more creative ways to reach compromise? You know, compromise, splitting the difference is always a bad idea. It just, it just always is. Um, mm -hmm. People are very vulnerable to it. And the people that want to take advantage of you understand how vulnerable most people are to it. And, and uh, the people that are there to uh, cut your throat, to, to really, really take you to the cleaners, understand there's a, a vulnerability of people who want to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, the accommodating people that are really desirous of the great relationship are, are enormously, enormously vulnerable to this. Mm -hmm. And it takes up people a little bit to understand that a genuine compromise just never works out. It just leaves, it leaves both sides unhappy. And you're, and, whether it's a personal relationship, professional relationship, you know, both sides being unhappy is just a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's the wi the willingness to move on, the will willingness to, you know, say, look, this is this is, isn't working. Um, you got to be able to just, walk away from the table. Yeah. And, and just don't but don't walk away abruptly. I mean, any business deal uh, or personal professional relationship, me or anybody in my company walks away from. The other side is never surprised. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've started to let out no a little at a time, to borrow a mm -hmm. phrase from a buddy of mine, Ned Coletti, used to manage the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. You know, he likes to say, I like to let out no a little at a time. Mm -hmm. So then the other side is is warned that it's coming. And if they're mad at you that they're, they've been warned, then that's a sign of a predator. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to punish you for something you've warned them is coming when they punish you for it. That's another sign that, yeah, it's it's time to get out. They're, they're, it, it is just time to move on. Predatory people want to make you feel guilty over setting a boundary. And so move on. Understand that when they trigger your guilt, that's one more confirmation they were the wrong person. Triggering the guilt. Yeah. When they start making allegations that, you know, essentially, yeah, uh, it was a hilarious line. Like, hey, uh, I, I paid back. Remember when I paid back that loan last month? Now you owe me a favor. It's like, no, guy, you, you got to understand when someone's asking a genuine favor or when they're trying to to kind of disingenuously guilt trip you. And that's that's definitely got to be a tip off that you're in a situation where you got to get out of. I guess the question yeah. being. You know how do you how, how how do you manifest that when the others the walk away from the table when on the other side of the table is someone holding a human being and, and someone's and uh, their life is in your hands? Well, in, in my negotiations, it was we we put a uh, a limit on behavior, mm -hmm. and you know we we coached a negotiation in Colombia one time where they were threatening to to 
harm a child. Mm-hmm. And we coached a mother who was in the negotiation. And she said, let me be clear. I can never deal with anybody that would harm a child. And they stopped because they, mm-hmm. they wanted to continue to deal. So, that, you know, that when you put a boundary on that, you know, you, you first you put a boundary on their behavior. And if they don't respect the boundary on their behavior, then it's one more side that you got to sign that you got to get out. Now, in hostage negotiation, making the other being willing, are we going to walk away from the table? Or are we going to give the impression we're ready to walk away from the table? I'm happy to give the impression. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You got to understand that even if you're dealing with some tough cookies on the other side, the fact that they're at the table means that they want to negotiate. And so, you know, if you can kind exactly. of shrewdly find ways to, to kind of chip away at their leverage or take a couple options off the table without taking all the options off the table, you can right. use that to your benefit. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Love you it. Got the, you, got the, you got the magic words out of me. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Also, the magic words. They, uh, so, everybody, these are the gems that you will find in Chris's book, uh, uh, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. Um, this was a fantastic chat. Hopefully, you come away from it with a little deeper understanding of human behavior and nature and some more of the tools to avoid uh, the the fraudsters and hucksters and con men that are unfortunately you know all over the place these days, even if you're not... You know, as we discussed earlier, they can sniff out the vulnerable, but I've seen that some people try to get one over on some pretty shrewd people. And the earlier you can sniff this stuff out, the better. And one of the keys uh, to that from our discussion is clearly being willing to take that early loss. That at some point you have to accept that. Wait a second. If it turn, if this, if I accept my gut instinct that this person is a fraudster, then I've lost a little bit, you know, my trust or whatever I, I contributed to this relationship. But it's saving me from a, a major headaches down the road. So something to really be be cognizant of and, and understand what your tolerance and, and ability is uh, to take that loss and be honest with yourself. So Chris, Nicole, if you could both let everybody know where to find you on on the internet on social media. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm at Nicole Benham, B-E-H-N-A-M. People always get that confused. <laughs> on Instagram, I'm at N-I-Triple-C-B. Um, and on TikTok, t- TikTok, I'm at Ask Nick. And everywhere else, I mean, I'm barely at. And what about Beyond? Oh, Beyond the Interview. Uh, you can find on Instagram at Beyond the Interview. That is my media platform. Fantastic. And Chris, for you and uh, the Black Swan Group? Yeah, the best place to go, just go to our website, blackswanltd.com. We get tons of free material. You know, we got a lot of stuff to help you get better. And then when you really up the level of your game, we got some really high-speed negotiation training that's available as well. The high-speed negotiation training, stuff we all need these days. Everybody, I hope you guys found this conversation fruitful. I know I did. Watch out for those Tinder swindlers. Keep it just to the document. If if their only involvement in your life is uh, a Netflix and chill night, you know, consider yourself lucky, but be on the lookout. Um, I am Matt Belinsky, and this is The Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.